You're listening to Talking Smart. The official podcast of the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers. This is Paul Pimentel, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Michael Blaine. Welcome to the fifth episode of Talking Smart. Each month, we bring you news, guests, and discussions of interest to smart members and working families across the United States and Canada. This episode, we hear from members of the Smart Women's Committee. While at the Partners in Progress conference in Las Vegas in February, we had a chance to sit down and talk with four smart sisters who have taken the lead in breaking new ground for women in the building trades. They discussed how they got into the industry, training and mentoring, growing diversity in construction, and opportunities for women in the sheet metal trade. We'll hear from two of them in this episode and two more in the next episode. This segment, we speak with Lisa Davis and Vanessa Carmen. Lisa is a local 16 member out of Portland, Oregon, who now works as a field representative at the International Training Institute, covering the entire U.S. and Canada. We're not here to diminish anybody else, but to lift us up to a level that's equal and equitable. We also talk with Vanessa Carmen, a trustee and leader at Local 66 in Seattle, Washington. Through the years, I bring a different perspective that nobody at the table can bring. Not only am I a woman, but I, you know, like I'm still currently working in the field. I have sisters come to me with with issues or problems, and I can actually address them. And hey, these things are happening out there. Like, how can we fix them? How can we make it better? Both Lisa and Vanessa are members of the Smart Women's Committee and have played leading roles in advancing the cause of women in the sheet metal trade. We'll continue our conversation with our smart sisters in the next episode, when we'll hear from Michelle McNew a longtime business manager at Local 464 in Polka City, Oklahoma, who also chairs the Smart Women's Committee. We'll also talk with Leah Rambo, a native New Yorker who serves as the training administrator for Local 28 and has broken ground for women and minority members in her local. We look forward to sharing our conversation with them in the following episode. In addition, watch for the open mic segment with General President Joseph Sellers at the end of this episode. He responds to members' questions about topics they called in or wrote to us about. If the Republicans or the Democrats or a committee wants to hear the voice of labor, we are going to meet with them and share the voice of labor. We're not going to squander an opportunity to let them know. They may or may not use that voice, but we are going to share that voice with that group. Lisa, thank you for being on the show today. Um, you got an interesting background. Can you tell us a little bit about it, how you came about coming into the sheet metal industry? Absolutely. I first got into the sheet metal industry probably because of my interest in mechanics. I worked through college um, at UC Davis where I was pursuing a medical microbiology degree with an emphasis in parasitology with a double major in psychology. I worked as a mechanic in a bowling alley of all places. So I was a mechanic in a bowling alley. I worked in radio. I loved being a mechanic in the bowling alley. It was on the same basement level, and I got to hear all of the machines run, and I got to fix them with my hands. I could actually hear a fault, what we called them, a broken machine. I could hear a fault uh, from the other room and go fix it before someone reported it. There's probably also a lot of microbiology in a bowling alley. Absolutely, particularly because it was only cleaned once a week. But <laughs> um. <laughs> 
I ended up getting into sheet metal, however, because I decided not to pursue a medical degree at OHSU in Portland, Oregon. I kind of woke up one day and I thought to myself, I don't want to do this today. And the next day I thought, yeah, not today either. I had better find a job. So I worked in open heart surgery, trauma surgery, orthopedic surgery until I was completely burnt out and I moved to Hawaii like everybody does when they're burnt out, right? So I moved to Hawaii and I did small engine repair and I worked on a coffee farm and I worked as a cook in a bar at night. And when it was time to grow up, I moved back to Portland and decided to get into motorcycles and worked at a bowling alley again. And this time working at a bowling alley was completely different. It was awful. I made $10 an hour with no benefits, no retirement, and my boss would say things like, okay, Lisa, go ahead and fix this with duct tape and twine and a real man will come fix it in the morning, even though I had the most experience and the most seniority there. I got online and I did a Google search for what can women possibly do in a trade? And an organization called Oregon Trades Women popped up. They do a pre-apprenticeship program where they take women around to different locals and different contractors and introduce them to the trades. They also teach things like trades math and reading a tape measure and working on job sites for Habitat for Humanity. I decided that I wanted to work with metal, of course, because I love machinery. And I applied to the UA and I applied to the sheet metal workers. And the sheet metal workers called me first and I've never looked back since. Awesome. That That's, is quite the journey to being is. a sheet metal worker. It is. So you started off as an apprentice. What was that like starting off back then? I started off as a 50% apprentice, and I remember I was in school before I was dispatched to a job. I was in school for a couple months and still working my other job. Uh, I was working at a plant nursery, actually. Still working my other job and going to sheet metal apprenticeship school and I had no job experience whatsoever. I had never been on a true construction site. I had never worked for a sheet metal contractor. And the entire thing was completely new to me, foreign to me. So I would go to study hall where there was a, an old time shop foreman uh, who came in and would teach study hall. And I showed up every single week and I said, Bob, his name was Bob, I said, Bob, please, teach me something. And he would say, what do you want to build? And I said, anything, just show me something. And so we would, I would build fittings for him um, every week. And that's kind of how I got my feet wet. I, so I worked through my apprenticeship and I ended up doing architectural sheet metal. I did shop fabrication. I did welding. I did high tech. I did industrial. I hung duct work and I um, ended up getting into service which I really loved because I love how systems work together. So I ended up getting into service and graduated from the building trades apprenticeship and also from our service program at Local 16 in Portland, Oregon. What kind of change have you seen since then? At the time, there was no one who looked like me in any kind of position of power uh, within the local. I would say that there were about 10 women working in sheet metal in the local. And there was no organizers, there were no representatives, there were no teachers, there were, there were no women. As far as I knew, there were no women superintendents or, or four people either. So for me, it all seemed 
just out of reach. There were a lot of people who approached me and told me that I wouldn't succeed and that I would leave. We had an organizer who was appointed who was a woman and we started seeing a little bit of change and I was approached and asked to apply for an instructor position and we started to see a little bit more change. And so we've seen kind of a surge of, of inclusion, I would say, uh, throughout the trades, not only for women, but also for people of color within our local. How important do you think it is having women and people of color in these kinds of positions and leadership positions? I think it's critical. There's a saying, we say that if you can't see it, you can't be it. And particularly when we talk about younger generations, they need to have the prospect, the prospect of upward mobility. And if they can't get there, if they see absolutely no option for them to achieve that, they'll leave. And I think that that's what we've been seeing a lot of. So speaking of generational change, do you think that there's more women, young women in particular, who are potentially interested in the trades? And is this an opportune time for them to try it out? I think it is a very opportune time for young women interested in the trades to, to get into the trades. And I think that now, now we're starting to see more uh, high schools have shop programs, reintegrating their shop programs. I went to a high school that didn't have a shop program, nothing. The closest there was to shop at my high school was ceramics class. And so we're starting to see now more money uh, being allocated for shop classes in high schools. And we're seeing more women joining those classes as well as younger generations come up. Is it a cultural thing? Like we've come to notice that when you look at certain states and you look at the Pacific Northwest, you look at Oregon, you look at Washington State, there seems to be a lot of women in the sheet metal industry, especially in those areas. What is it? Is it about the culture or what is it? I think it has to do with the the culture in in the Pacific Northwest. I think that there are a lot of hobbies that are pervasive in the Northwest that make it very attractive for women uh, to want to join a trade. There's welding classes, there's axe throwing at bars, there's forgery. Like you can you can become an iron work or an iron smith um, for a hobby. And so there's just kind of this culture of do-it-yourselfness, and there's this culture of going out into the woods and roughing it type of uh, hobbies and interests that are pervasive in the culture in the Pacific Northwest. I think that definitely has something to do with it. Okay. Have you tried axe throwing in bars? I haven't tried axe throwing in bars, but I did set up a round in my backyard, and one of my best friends and I do throw hatchets. Yes. Do you have, ever have any of your enemies over to... <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying that I have enemies? I have no enemies. <laughs> so going back to, to a little bit of a more serious topic, and, and we asked Vanessa this question and the other folks this question too. Have you ever experienced or seen harassment in the workplace? Yes. I have seen sexual harassment. I've experienced sexual harassment. I've seen racial harassment. And I've seen bullying Um, in the trades. I think that as an instructor, it is a crucial time in a person's career to start learning what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And so as an instructor, we do try to drive into people's minds that we want to be professionals. We've been conditioned in this country to play less of a role in advocating for ourselves. And so that can be a, a barrier for some people. So one of the things that is really important, particularly for women, 
uh, and people of color is to have a space like a women's committee uh, or a mentoring program where you can approach and discuss some of those things too. There's a lot of you know, baggage that people bring along with them from previous experiences. And it's really difficult sometimes for people of color or for women in apprenticeship where they're experiencing something and they don't know if this is how everybody else gets treated too. They don't know if they're being treated this way or expected to work this way because they're a woman or because they're an apprentice. And I think that places like a, like a mentoring program and women's committees are a really good place to explore those ideas and get help if it is something that is a, that is a problem. So as a woman who experienced some sexual harassment and just doubters, it, it sounded like, in some of your early work, and now as an instructor who I, I presume is teaching largely younger people, do you see generational differences in the responsiveness to, say, sexual harassment training or you know, generational differences in ideas about uh, equality between genders, that sort of thing? I think that a common conception that people have is that younger people are a lot more tolerant and a, and a lot more um, aware of uh, some, of the, some of the inequalities that are going on in today's society. I might challenge that idea because there are some of our younger generation that need to be educated and made aware of some of the expectations that we have in our industry. As an instructor, when I was teaching for the local, I did experience some of those, those questions coming from my class, and we had some really good opportunities for conversation. What, what sort of questions? Uh, questions like, um, so there would be tours from Oregon tradeswomen who would come through the building, or on International Women's Day, we would have a kind of a celebration or events going on. And I had a few of my students say things like, when are they going to have a, an International Men's Day in construction? And I would make a joke at first saying, well, that's every day, <laughs> but let's talk about that. I already checked that box. <laughs> right? Like, okay, but let's talk about it, and let's talk about why, why this is a thing now. And it's not, we're not here to diminish anybody else, but to lift us up to a level that's equal and equitable. So, so having those conversations is really good uh, to do in class, as well as on the job as a leader. So people who are leaders are able to have those conversations in groups and also have a little bit of reverse peer pressure, right? So if there are jokes or inappropriate jokes going on or conversation that is, should, shouldn't have a place at the job site or at school, is leaders can step in and say, hey, not cool, let's change the subject, or hey, do you know why that's not cool? And we can have that conversation. Earlier you said if, if you can't see it, you can't be it something I'm paraphrasing. As, as a teacher, have you had some mentorship relationships with some young women in your classes and have any of them sort of spoken to what that's meant to them to have, to see it as they're trying to be it? I have had, um, I have had multiple women um, ask me for advice and I have helped them through situations where I've helped them through school issues or job site issues 
as a, as a kind of informal mentor. Uh, I also helped our local create a mentoring program, a formal mentoring program, when we started realizing that this is, this is a need. This is a need that our apprentices have. This is a need that our new members have that are newly organized in that need some guidance in how our organization works and, again, what our expectations are as far as behavior and what our expectations are as far as our job scope is concerned. So I have had uh, some, some really good relationships formed with other women uh, as they've come through the apprenticeship program and as they've gone out uh, beyond that. It's been really rewarding for me to be able to help them the way that I needed help uh, apprentices tend to leave, particularly women and people of color, tend to leave in their second and third years of apprenticeship. And that's a long ways further down the road than simply saying, you know, I don't think this is for me a month or two in. This is years on down the road, and that's, that's really telling that they don't agree with the true core values of this organization or their they don't feel like they belong or any other type of long-stemming issue that we can really resolve with a lot of culture change and mentoring. So I know that it's worked in other areas throughout the country, and I'm, I'm hoping that we see the same numbers change for Portland, Oregon. Now, you're not with Local 16 anymore. Now you're with ITI. Can you describe a little bit about your position there? I am a uh, field representative and service specialist for the International Training Institute. This is the training arm of SMART. And I get to travel around the country and help locals with their service programs, help locals with their TAB programs, and also train instructors who then go back to their locals and train train their apprentices. So it's a really amazing opportunity for me to travel around the country and do this. I am, uh, as far as I know, I'm the first woman, and I believe I'm the youngest hired uh, to this position. So you're an example of how you can go and move on up, Absolutely. and there's upward mobility. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been very, very lucky to have all the opportunities that I've had and to uh, see the, the response come back as well. That, that, that effort that I put in has also rewarded. So do you, do you feel like you're a role model? Does you feel any pressure or weight as, as the first and sort of people seeing you at this level, you know, a woman in the trade, a woman instructor, now with ITI, other people seeing you and saying, oh, she, she can do it. I can, I can be that. I think, yes. Uh, there are some, there are probably some people out there saying, well, yes, if she can do it, I can do it. For me personally, it's, uh, it's pressure at every level. So there's pressure walking onto a job site where, uh, for example, in my first year of apprenticeship, I walked onto a job site where I was the only woman out of 500 construction workers on the entire site. And being that first woman in any position, there is immense pressure on yourself because you believe that you are uh, creating the first impression for all of womankind. That if, if I fail, then it means that everyone's going to think every other woman is going to fail. And so there's a lot of internal pressure that we put on ourselves in any first experience where we think that there's a possibility that we're risking it for all of us. What would you tell somebody who doesn't think women can hack it in the industry? I would tell them that they absolutely can, that we can hack it. And if they don't believe that we can diversify like we should, 
then they should prepare to lose a lot of market, a lot of density, and slowly see this union die. I think that the union's livelihood, survivability, is going to depend on our outreach to many different people from many different backgrounds. And that's how we're going to make ourselves bigger, better, and stronger. You are listening to Talking Smart. As the coronavirus continues to impact our communities and jobs, please visit the Smart homepage at www.smart-union.org for a compilation of COVID-19 resources from across our industries and trusted government sources from throughout the United States and Canada. So, Vanessa, can you tell us about yourself and how did you become a sheet metal worker? So I was in accounting and I was pretty bored. My brother was a tradesperson. He's actually a non-union sheet metal service tech, but other members of my family were also in the trades. My dad was a building operating engineer and my other brother's a plumber. Um, so I was bored and one day my brother was going to go change out my uncle's furnace and asked if I could help him. So um, I did and it was exciting and fun and um, I thought, hey, you know, I could get paid for this. That's my start. That's what was exciting about it? The, the hands-on part or the, the metal or what, what was yeah, it? Yeah, just working with my hands. And I think that I was always interested in it, but it was never something that I thought that I could do just being a woman. And it's not like my dad discouraged it because, you know, his sons were in the trades. It was just that I just didn't think I was capable of doing it as a woman. I didn't see other women out there doing that kind of work. So I just figured it wasn't for me. During the panel earlier today, you spoke to uh, one of the myths about women in the trades is that they're not interested in the building trades or in sheet metal. That was one of the myths that I think you said annoys you the most. I just think that, um, you know, coming out of high school, it's not something that is promoted to women, at least when I came out of high school. I think we do a better job now in recruitment, you know, going out to career fairs and reaching out to like women-specific career fairs just to let them know that we're here. The other myth that gets me mad is just thinking that women aren't strong enough to do it or are or not capable to do it. When it comes to that, what would you say to people who would say that? What I say to them that we can do it. <laughs> I think that we're not required to be like some sort of muscle men. You know, we're out there and there's um, we've come a long way and we have technology that makes it easy for us to do. Like everybody, everybody that wants to do it could do it. There's tools that we can use to you know get the job done. We're not required to just like muscle it. Although I understand in, in your case, you've muscled it on some other fronts. Could you tell <laughs> us a little true. bit about that? Um, yeah, so I like to power lift. Yeah, I always wanted to be strong. I used to work out with my brothers when I was young, and I never realized how strong I was. I wasn't as strong as them, but I was really strong for a woman. And I remember people are like in the gym just like looking in the mirrors, just like, what is she doing? But I do have a, a Washington State bench press record for powerlifting. Wow. Yeah. But you don't have to be a competition-level bench presser to work in the trades. No. In sheet metal as a woman. Absolutely not. <laughs> when, when you first started in the industry, what was it like? My story's a little bit different in that I didn't start in the union trades. I started in residential, and I actually didn't just go into the apprenticeship program. I had years of experience of being a non-union residential worker. And that process getting in was a lot, um, a lot more difficult. You know, I, I decided that after I worked with my brother, I decided that I wanted to get into the trades, and I didn't know how to do it. So I just thought I would apply for entry-level positions doing sheet metal work whether it be working in a warehouse, being a driver or whatever. I thought I had to start at the bottom. And so I did. I knocked on doors. I, I used a newspaper. I did resumes. And, of course, my experience was accounting and being a barista. So it didn't really help me. You know, my skills weren't really great for the, uh, for the trades. But it's a funny story because nobody called me. 
at all. And I changed my name to Van on the resume. And so then I got phone calls, maybe because I was a woman, you know? <laughs> yeah, once I had Van, I, I got a couple phone calls. And um, so I started, that's how I started in the industry, just um, uh, knocking on doors and I became a warehouse worker. So that's the beginning. How long ago was that? Uh, 16 years ago. So has it changed? Do you think that Vanessa applying today for the first time would likely encounter the same experience? I think so, yeah. yeah. It's changed. There's so much promotion. I mean, there's everybody promotes it. There's um, high schools invite us into their schools so they can talk about it because they know that you know, not everybody's going to go to college. And it's an opportunity for everybody. You know, working in the field now, you see women, you see other tradeswomen, you know, every trade. I think one job site I was on just recently, it was, I think, 50-50. And there's like three Three women and three men, but it was like, hey, check this out, you know, exciting. You said it was different coming in from residential, non-union, than it is going into an apprenticeship, right? And that was a lot harder. What were the differences? Well, I think the training and the advancements and opportunity is different. Obviously, there's going to be a wage difference, and there's nothing that is going to be equality in my non-union work. And so, like, the training was also... I didn't have any formal training. It was just on-the-job training. So coming into the union, getting those skills was huge for me. And I started at the bottom, of course. I didn't get any um, work experience. And I think that I had the conversation when I finally joined with my um, apprenticeship coordinator. It was important that I started at the bottom because I didn't have those skills. So when you go into the union, I mean, you're learning the whole way up um, through your apprenticeship. So you don't, um, you're not lacking skills. So you're a trustee on the JATC? Can you speak a little bit about the importance of that in terms of being a woman in a leadership role and in a more visible role, maybe? Um, and also, sort of related, the importance of women being part of the face of the industry when you're out at career fairs or you know staffing a table or something like that. Um, so when I was approached by my business manager to be a trustee, it was you know quite an honor. And I think that through the years, I bring a different perspective that nobody at the table can bring. Not only am I a woman, but I, you know, like I'm still currently working in the field, and I have experiences and stories, and I and I active it on my women's committee that you know I have sisters come to me with issues or problems, and I can actually address them. And hey, these things are happening out there. Like, how can we fix them? How can we make it better? So I think it's um, it's it just benefits the whole you know JTC, just a labor and management. And um, with the career fairs, I think it's really important that you do have a woman face at the booth. Sometimes it's intimidating if you're coming into this construction world and you don't nothing to, know nothing about it, and there's nobody on the other side that can that looks like you that can you know talk to you about how it really is. So this is often a difficult topic, but for a lot of people, they are not aware of a lot of things that happen on a job site. And for a lot of women, we've heard about a lot of instances of harassment and things of that nature. Have you, like, or even maybe hypothetically, without naming names or anything like that, experienced anything like that or seen anything like that during your time? I have experienced, and there's plenty of stories that I've heard. I guess um, my go-to is always trying to figure out how I'm going to communicate with people. Like, I might be a different gender, but I'm going to find some way that we're going to communicate. And I guess that this is pertaining to people that don't want women on the job site. So I'm going to find something. Like, we got kids in common. Let's talk about kids. Let's talk about food. Whatever's going to break the ice so that we can... Um, find some way to communicate because we got to get the job done. So there was somebody that I had worked with for a while. I thought, you know, we were good co-workers. And one day he just decided to grab me. You know, it was like shocking. And I was like angry and like, what? What is happening? And I think that I got more upset because I thought that we were good. Like I thought we were like, hey, like you're my brother. 
I didn't say anything at first. I did tell my foreman the next day because this was when we were leaving the job site. And so he actually called the contractor. And so one of the owners came down to the to the field where we were working and he got us together and he's just like, all right, let's talk about this. I don't want to have to fire either one of you. And I was like, well, what did I do? <laughs> you know, like I, like I literally did nothing. After that complaint, it was on and on of just retaliation. And you think that it's not going to happen, right? You, you read this sexual harassment disclaimer or whatever, and, and you, you take the training and you sign the paper and you say that you're not going to do it. And, you know, you believe that someone's going to be there to protect you. Or, yeah, I did talk to my business agent and went that path, but it was just, you know, it's just shocking and embarrassing. And But, there, I mean, there's people that are still out there doing that. And this, I presume this was uh, pre-Me Too. Um, it was. So it was sort of you're presumed to be on equal standing. You say this happened, and the employer says, hey, I don't want to fire anybody. It kind of right. puts things that are really not on equal footing, like a he said, she said kind right. of thing. And then the retaliation was coming from the employer or your coworker? The or? coworker. Yeah. Yeah. So given the cultural shift in the country, and Harvey Weinstein just got convicted this week, has the context changed or is, is the problem still the same on, on the job? I think that there's been a lot of change, you know, support from the international, support from my particular local. My business manager, Tim Carter, is very supportive of women. You know, we have a active women's committee and a mentoring program. And I think that members seeing that there's so much, and this, I guess I'm just talking about the bad guys. They're, they're like, okay, there's all this support and maybe I'm not going to get away with this anymore. Or there's brothers that are seeing that this is happening, brothers and sisters that are seeing this is happening, and they, they're having like the ability to have a voice and say, hey, don't do that. Whether it's gender discrimination or you know like racial discrimination, whatever it is, it's people who are actually um, having the ability to have a voice and stand up for one another. Like with bullying, people who witness it are feeling more empowered to right. do something. Do you see any more resources now than there were before? somebody would be facing a situation like that? Um, yeah. When I joined, um, there was women, but I didn't know anybody. This is like my whole five years of apprenticeship. Like, I, I've, I saw women, but I never even talked to them. And it's kind of like you're in it alone. So to have this group of women, you know, our committee that we get together, even if we don't, you know, hang out outside of work, it's like we have each other to, like, talk to about these problems that we're having or... Or maybe it's just like having somebody listen to you. So what would you tell a fellow sister who just entered into the industry? What advice would you have? I would tell them to, I mean, all the regular things that, that come with being an apprentice, you know, be there on time and, you know, be a good worker. But I also say to, um, you got to advocate for yourself. Sometimes it's going to be, um, you might be with somebody that's not going to train you equally. And it's important to just say, you know, if it's talking to your supervisor foreman or even even if you have to bring it up to the next level of the JTC, it's important that you let them know that, hey, I'm lacking these skills and I need to be trained because you only have five years. And after that five years, you're expected to be equal with all your male, you know, co-workers. So you're you're the communications chair of the women's committee? Yeah. How, so what do you do in, in that role and sort of what's the importance of communicating with uh, about what the committee does and also with other women across the union? So it's still a work in progress. We have a long way to go. I mean, there's so many things that we can do with the, the communica communication. Um, so what we've started to do, we want, we want to get a website. We want to get um, 
stories of things that are happening in different locals and ha- and share their stories and have like a you know a direct route of communication with them. So have regional contacts so we know what's happening out there. Um, maybe it's sharing what you're doing at career fairs or you know like a pattern of some sort of project that you build at these career fairs so we can share this and you know use it within our own locals. What about connecting more women um, online in, in terms of mentorship or some of these questions, right? You know, if there's not a local person that has an answer or experience with that. Right. We've discussed that, and I think that's a great idea. And like I said, it's like we're just trying to, like, get this thing started. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, room for growth. And, uh, yeah, we're just getting started. And, it, you know, I'm excited to see where it goes. Let me ask you this question. I want to ask you one question. One last question. What would you say to somebody who's saying that women can't work in the sheet metal industry, women can't do this work, we can't diversify, you know, this is a man's world? What would you say to them? Yeah, I think that, like the other question, just we're equal. We can, we can do this. And I think that anybody that wants to do it can do it. You might have to work a little bit harder. Maybe maybe you do have to get um, a little bit more physical and like work out to be able to stay in there at work or whatever. But I think anybody that wants to do it can do it. Vanessa, it was great to be with you here at the Partners of Progress Conference. We want to thank you for being on the show and taking the time to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Sign up for text message alerts and stay on top of news from across our union that affects you, your job, and your family. Just text the word SMART to 21333. Doing so ensures you receive timely information about job banks, new episodes of this podcast, action alerts on critical legislation, member benefit information, Smart Army, and much more. Again, just text the word SMART to 21333. Message and data rates may apply. This is our open mic segment with General President Sellers. We have some questions from members, um, which are mostly revolving around politics. And since this is primary season, um, it seems to be a common theme to what people are asking about and what is on people's minds when it comes to this. Our first question comes from Mike Keel, a member from Arizona. He asks, have Republicans ever cared about labor and unions? So I I would first like to thank uh, our listeners and like to thank our brothers and sisters that are submitting questions uh, and my answer to this one is yes. Uh, we have relationships with both Democrats and Republicans. It's mostly issue-driven. Uh, you say, we, the question says ever, and I would say, if you look back over time, with a lot of help from labor unions, um, you know, the development of OSHA and safety standards, uh, work day, work week, you know, those standards that we all enjoy today that we may take a little bit for granted, but yes, uh, there's bipartisan uh, support on those types of issues, and labor unions uh, were a driving factor in getting those pieces of legislation done. So yes, we do. We have we have relationships with uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, on a national level as well as local levels. Uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, are endorsed by local unions uh, as they see fit with their membership, as well as state legislative state legislative boards. Uh, in the transportation division across all of North America, whether it's U.S. and Canada, we we really evaluate legislators on the issues that affect our members, that affect our families, that affect our jobs. You know, jobs, 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 right? Safety, health of our families. So those things are very important, and we want to make sure that we're meeting with legislators 
uh, Democrats and Republicans on issues that affect our members and the lifestyles and the improved lifestyles of our families. So those are something. A couple examples of, of meeting even with some Republicans. And just recently I met with Congressman McKinley from West Virginia. Uh, he was working on a transportation issue and and uh, we had an opportunity to share some time with him. But also on the construction side, he is the founder and the co-chair of the Building Trades Caucus within Congress. So he is, uh, he is a friend uh, and we continue to work with him. A couple other examples are David Joyce out of uh, Ohio, uh, Brian Fitzpatrick out of Pennsylvania. We, we work under if, if the Republicans or the Democrats or a committee wants to hear the voice of labor, we are going to meet with them and share the voice of labor. We're not going to squander an opportunity to let them know. They may or may not use that voice, but we are going to share that voice with that group. It's always important to have a dialogue with everybody, no matter what. It is. So with it still being the political season, we're in the middle of primary season, we got another question that came in. Not so much a question, but more of a statement that came in through our phone line. And we're going to play it for you right now. I would like to know why I should support a union that is only one-minded as far as a political view. I do not believe that any union should support any members of Congress or the Senate. So what would you say to arguments that we should stay out of elective politics? A lot of people hear that on job sites and they hear that at work, at work sites and places like that. What would you say to that? I think it's important now more than ever to be involved in that process. We need to elect friends of labor. We need to make sure that they have labor values. The middle class continues to shrink. We hear a lot about the middle class continuing to shrink, and, and labor and union jobs are the middle class. The disparity between CEOs and workers continues to grow at such a rapid pace. So the haves and the have-nots continue to, to be a much larger gap. And, and with our voice, we're able to address those things. And a couple examples may be in construction. On a federal level, Davis-Bacon and Davis-Bacon rates. Now you get into a state level or a, or a city level, you have prevailing wage, right? That totally affects our wage, our wage package, which is our benefits, our pension, and our, uh, our take-home pay. So these things we need to be engaged with on a regular basis, whether it's locally or whether it's federally. Let's go to the rail. FRA did a complete flip in 2019 over two-person crew. Mm -hmm. Locally, we continue to charge forward with transportation division on two-person grew at, at a state level, right? So there again, it's, it's not just federal, but it's also local. And, and it's really taking all hands on deck to make sure that labor values are heard uh, across, the, across the aisle. So we go on, I go under the premises, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, right? You need to make sure that we're part of that process. If you, we're not engaged in public policy, then our adversaries will. We're seeing that right now with some of the things that we've just talked about with uh, IRAPs and registered apprenticeship programs. So these are some of the things that we continue to work on. Um, and and the, really the attack last summer on registered apprenticeship programs that have been around for decades is really a good example of that. And now, and now we have this uh, uh, ruling that came out. Um, but we also know that our adversaries are going after and attacking it like right away. Before it came out, they've, they've already positioned themselves to try to attack it. Transportation and transportation issues. They're in the middle of national negotiations right now. I would much rather a labor 
valued person appointing a presidential emergency board, which is really going to render a decision, right? Or help through rendering a decision. Uh, you, you may hear me say in a lot of different settings, if we don't shape our future, then somebody will shape it for us. I think now is important more than ever to make sure that we're fully engaged and making sure that our members, their values, their union values are at the front of representatives, whether local or federal. Now, you mentioned IRAPs just now and what just happened. And, and this past week, that final IRAPs ruling came in, and it was a positive for us. Can you tell us a little bit more about how we got that got to win that and also a little bit about how they're challenging us now? So last summer, the Department of Labor uh, issued comment period for, for uh, registered apprenticeship programs and IRAPs. Uh, we went out to the industry tough time of year during vacations, but we had an overwhelming support of, of smart members, families, uh, uh, SMACNA contractors, transportation division members, all weighing in with a unique letter to the Department of Labor uh, of, about how important this is. The building trades, in general, got 340,000 responses, unique responses on that topic. So the issue came up. It came up over a tough period, and frankly, I thought that it was designed to be a tough period so that you wouldn't get the responses. But we, as, an, as a union industry, realized and recognized that we need to respond, and we did. And over a period of time, they just issued that there is a construction carve-out based on all the information that they had, which I also believe included the three, 340,000 communications that they received. So those are some of the things that we continue to work on. You know, pension issues continue to pop up. Multi-employer pension issues are, are hot right now. We need to make sure that our legislators understand what, what the, complex, the complexity of the pension plans are and, and you know, what's the truth of, of funding and, and funding levels and things like that. So those things are vitally important, and that's really an education process and, and making sure that we as a union are informing our legislators about that issue. You're listening to Talking Smart. Mobilize, organize, unionize. Do you have story ideas or have a question for the general president or union leadership? Call us toll-free at 844-984-0947 with your questions or ideas. Once again, 844-984-0947. 